When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Alice and Felix felt really prepared to have a low-medication, low-intervention vaginal birth. She'd read all about these things. She'd gone to all the classes. She had a birth plan that she felt really confident about. And of course, she was at the top of her game physically. But what this seven-time Olympic gold medalist didn't prepare for was a situation where everything went wrong. I think I knew the statistics just about women of color and complications, you know, but I just, being an athlete, I didn't really ever consider myself, you know, I never imagined that I would be in that scenario. When she was 32 weeks along at a routine doctor's appointment, Allison was diagnosed with severe preeclampsia. That's a potentially life-threatening complication. She was immediately admitted to the hospital and things started moving very quickly. Allison says that at the time, she didn't realize how much danger she was in. Talking to my brother after the fact, he explained that he didn't know if he was coming to see his niece be born, or if his sister was going to pass away. On this episode, Allison takes us through what she calls the scariest two days of her life. And she talks about the warning signs of pregnancy emergencies that all women should be aware of, especially Black women who are 50% more likely to have preeclampsia. We also hear about what was happening behind the scenes in her professional life. Allison was renegotiating her contract with Nike, and it was not going well. The brand was offering a lot less money because of her pregnancy, and they refused to guarantee that she wouldn't be punished if she didn't meet a specific performance threshold in the months after giving birth. In 2019, she went public with her story. It was really terrifying to, you know, share my story um, in the New York Times op-ed, but also I felt like it was really important to be able to do that and to, to get that story out. And I just feel like there's really power when you speak your truth and change can come. And so even though it was something I wasn't comfortable doing, I felt like I needed to do it and was glad I was able to get it out there. This is Me Becoming Mom, where we talk to famous women you know and love all about their extraordinary journeys to motherhood. I'm Zoe Ruderman from People. Obviously, for a lot of working women planning to start a family, it can be a tricky conversation and how you kind of balance that with your career. But you are a working woman who works in a sort of different way, and you're one of the best runners in the world. Your body is your work. So I'm curious what it was like thinking about planning for a family, and did you have to delay that decision? I imagine the timing was very, very specific. Yeah, totally. Nobody sat me down and and told me, like, you have to accomplish all of this and then you can think about starting a family. But it was just what I saw, you know, and I felt like I did have to wait. And it wasn't that women weren't doing it, you know, in sport, but um, it wasn't celebrated. So it wasn't at the forefront. And I believe that the women who were doing it were really struggling and it was really difficult and they weren't supported and they didn't have the resources. And so I did feel like I had to do everything that I wanted to do, and then I could finally start thinking about, okay, I'm in a good enough position where I can start a family in the case that I can't go on further or I'm not supported or I don't have sponsorship, that I'll be all right. 
Wow, that's a lot to plan for. And were you thinking specific timing around like certain Olympics and training? Yeah, exactly. It, it's almost like I think for a lot of runners and a lot of Olympians in general, you work on these four-year cycles and it's like, okay, well, you have to go backwards. You know, what's the off year and how quickly can I get back and how can I fit this in um, to work in the bigger picture? So I was doing the same thing. I was thinking about the off years and, you know, how close to the Olympics did I want to do this and all of that. So tell me about when you did start trying and did it happen right away for you? So yeah, we decided to, it was um, in 2018, you know, it, it was an off year and started to, you know, start thinking about starting a family. And then when it did happen, there was just a lot going on. So I, even though I was comfortable with that, I was still very scared with the idea of, okay, now I'm going to have to move forward with, you know, telling my sponsor and what comes after that and next steps and um, what does it look like to start putting a plan together to be able to come back to training? And did you keep running while you were pregnant? I did. So I was very scared <laughs> because I was negotiating a new contract and I had seen what happened in the industry with other women. And so I felt like I had to keep running and I had to, um, I, I didn't disclose my pregnancy right away. And so I ran for a couple months while I was still pregnant on a competition level. When did you disclose your pregnancy to your sponsor? It was sometime after I was maybe somewhere around six months or so. Um, and yeah, and, th and that's when we had that conversation. And that's when um, it, it became clear that I wasn't going to fully be supported. And how did that feel for you? It was really difficult. You know, I think um, even though I was, I had seen a lot of women struggle in this area, at the same time, I felt like I had been, you know, very successful and I had gone above and beyond, you know, and family was preached to me. And, you know, so I, I just, for some reason, I felt like, well, it'll be different for me. Um, and it wasn't different for me, you know. And so to be at such a, a crucial time in your life and a time that, you know, should be celebrated and should be filled with so much joy, um, there was a lot of hurt and pain there. And physically, separately from the sponsorship conversations, how was pregnancy for you? I had a great pregnancy um, for the majority of it. You know, I was still running. You know, I was still um, feeling good, feeling strong. I, I, I actually really enjoyed it. And then um, I had a lot of complications um, at starting at 32 weeks. Right. So tell me about leading into that 32-week mark, did you have birth preferences or a birth plan? Did you have a vision of how you wanted that delivery to go? I absolutely did. And I think that was part <laughs> of my problem. Um, I had in my mind what I would consider, you know, my perfect uh, scenario, which was a natural birth. You know, I had picked out the birthing suite. I had done hypnobirthing. So all of, you know, I was very committed to my birth experience looking that way. And, you know, now after the fact, I understand that um, you have to be open to all situations. And, you know, the end goal is a healthy child. And that's the most important. And the route to that can uh, um, go in various ways. Did you have friends or family members who had had preeclampsia? Did you have a sense of what preeclampsia was? Was this something that your care providers ever brought up to you? No, I was pretty unfamiliar with it. Um, I I think I knew the statistics just about women of color and complications, you know, but I just, being an athlete, I didn't really ever consider myself 
you know, I never imagined that I would be in that scenario. You know, I, I've live a healthy lifestyle. You know, I, I was training, I felt good. And so it just wasn't on my radar at all. Um, and no, I didn't really have those conversations with my doctors. I was talking to Sean Johnson East, the gymnast, and she felt like my body always knows what to do and it it serves me and it's really strong. And if there's anyone out there who can have an unmedicated, natural, you know, low intervention birth, it's me. And then was really disappointed to have a C-section. Was that kind of what was going through your head? Like, I am incredibly strong, stronger than the average woman. This is something that I should be able to accomplish. I think I definitely shared those feelings that Sean had. I think it was also this idea of, um, you know, you just, yeah, you're you're healthy and this is your lifestyle and you never imagine, you know, kind of having to go there and um, this sense of, you know, disappointment that it doesn't look the way that you had imagined. Right. So... I also had preeclampsia before I delivered. And the scary thing about preeclampsia is you often don't have warning signs until you're, I mean, at least for me, until it was pretty severe. So did you have any sense that anything was wrong? Were there any warning signs? No, and absolutely. That was the the very scary part. I had some swelling in my feet, but, you know, obviously that can just be with pregnancy. So I, I just attributed it to that. And, you know, I, I didn't see anything alarming. So when did you have the sense that something was not right? Was it at a, you know, a typical appointment when they took your blood pressure? What sort of tipped you off? So I had went in for just my normal appointment at 32 weeks. Um, and that's when um, I was spilling protein and, um, and that's when we were getting all the signs and I was admitted at that point. So tell me, um, or for our listeners who aren't familiar with preeclampsia, kind of what those signs are and why it's so important to take action quickly. Yeah. So, um, you know, when you go into your doctor's office, typically, you know, they'll take a urine sample and that will display if you're spilling protein, you know, they'll check your uh, blood pressure, you know, and these are all indications that, um, you know, that that something is wrong and um, characteristics of preeclampsia. And so um, I was showing those signs and, and, you know, they monitored me for a while just to make sure um, and then, you know, sent me over to the hospital. So I, I want to talk about all the specifics of that moment. So they send you to the hospital. Did you call family at that time? Did you have a sense of I might be giving birth very soon or was that not going through your head yet? It was a very interesting day because um, I went, you know, for this appointment and later that day. So at this point, um, the world still doesn't know that I'm pregnant. I had been going through that battle, you know, with Nike and, you know, I was at a place where I was getting ready to kind of tell my story um, and share, you know, that I'd be giving birth soon. And so I had a photo shoot scheduled for later that day, actually, with ESPN. Wow. And I didn't understand what was happening at all because I remember sitting in my doctor's office and, you know, being hooked up to monitors and she's telling me that, you know, I'm going to need to go over to the hospital and get some further tests. At that point, I didn't know I was going to be admitted, but I remember asking her, um, okay, well, that's fine, you know, but um, I have this photo shoot. So how about I do the photo shoot first and then I head over? And she's like, you're not understanding. You need to go right away. Like, this is very serious. And that's kind of when everything hit me. Um, my husband was at work. You know, I called him and I'm like, I, I'm not sure what this means, but they're telling me that I have to go right away. And I think that's when it kind of shook me up that this is uh, this could be serious. And did your doctor explain the risk of, you know, why you had to act so quickly and take this seriously? For me, I didn't really know much about preeclampsia. So I'm curious, like, 
are you the mom to be who was Googling on your way over to the hospital and being like, what is this? What could happen to me? It was really interesting because at that point, the term preeclampsia still hadn't come up. So no, it was just that there were these signs that were concerning and that I needed to be further monitored. So I didn't even, you know, I didn't even know what the issue really was. And everything was kind of at that point moving pretty quickly. So it was just get over there right away and kind of they'll take over from there. And did your husband meet you at the hospital? Yeah, in, in true fashion of, of myself, I'm like, we'll finish the day and, you know, it'll be fine. Like, just come when you're done. Allison, I love that you're like, can I do my photo shoot? Tell your husband to stay at work. You're, the doctors are like, you're not understanding. Clearly, I'm not getting it. So, um, of course, he didn't listen to me. And, he, you know, he met me over at the hospital shortly after, you know, in triage. And then that's when things really started picking up speed um, and moving quickly that I, I was going to need to be admitted. So what happened? Um, what tests did they do? When did they decide to admit you? At that point, they were monitoring, um, I believe, my, you know, my blood pressure closely and also the baby's heart rate. And, um, and that's when they determined that um, they were going to admit me. And then from there, um, it just, it, it was a very difficult evening. At that point, it was kind of later into the evening um, and things were kind of spiraling. Spiraling in what way? How you were feeling physically or just sort of the onslaught of information? Yeah, the information. So I kind of explained how I had that birth plan, right? And so once I got admitted into the hospital, I was still trying to grasp what was happening. You know, that's when the terms preeclampsia was starting to come up. Um, but they, they still hadn't really committed, like, you know, fully did you know, was that it? Was there anything more? Um, and I could just tell the movement around me with the doctors who was in the room, the amount of doctors in the room. I was like, this doesn't feel good. Preeclampsia is a common and dangerous complication of pregnancy. It causes high blood pressure and excess protein in the urine. Typically, it occurs in the third trimester or very soon after birth. There can be warning signs like blurred vision, headaches, swelling, but what's really scary is that often, like in Allison's case, there are no warning signs. I remember talking to a doctor and um, asking, because at this point, my family is across the country, and I was just like, do I need to call my family? You know, it seems like this is, you know, not really going in the way that I wanted. Um, I had, I was still asking at that point, like, uh, the birthing suite was in a different wing of the hospital, and so I'm like can I get over to that birthing suite? You know, is that a possibility? They're like, you're not going over there. <laughs> like your uh, condition is not conducive to giving birth in that way. And that's when it was really hitting me that, okay, this is, this is getting a bit scary. Um, the doctor said, yes, it's time to call your family. You know, if there's any chance um, that they can make it over, now would be the time to give them a call. Were you nervous? At this point, I was, you know, um, it was, you know, when they told me that I couldn't go to the birthing suite, that my family needed to come. Um, at that point, they did diagnose me with severe preeclampsia and started talking to me about different scenarios. Uh, that's when I, I really did become scared. At any point, did they walk you through what might happen if you didn't deliver soon? At a certain point, you know, I was going through the night and um, I needed oxygen and I was on gluco glucose. Um, I couldn't get up from the bed, you know, all of, I'm sure, things that you're very familiar with. Um, once all the those things started happening, they did let me know that um, 
that it wouldn't be safe um, if it, things continued in this way. It wasn't going to be safe for you know baby to stay inside, and that they would have to um, be prepared to take you know measures to get her out. And were you at exactly thirty-two weeks at this point? Yes. Yeah. You know, when I first got to the hospital, you know, they were trying to be able to, you know, basically just admit me and keep me in there for maybe a month or, you know, a little bit over and basically as long as I could go. And that quickly shifted to, you know, this is something that can't wait. That must have been really terrifying. So at what point did you start to think about a baby being born at 32 weeks and what that would mean? It was that evening. I remember, you know, as it seemed like, you know, around the clock, people were coming into my room and, you know, doing all kinds of things. And I remember just pulling one of the doctors to the side and asking, well, what does this mean? You know, I'm two months early, you know, what does this mean for my baby? What would life look like, you know? And um, they explained that, you know, I was um, in a in a decent, you know, obviously it's not ideal, but, you know, I had reached over that 28-week mark and that, you know, babies do really well. You know, I was in a great hospital with a great NICU and um, that, you know, obviously we would be going to the NICU, but um, that it would, it would be very hopeful. So it was scary, but also did give me a, a sense of um, reassurance in that, in that sense. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mm -hmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. When you call your family across the country eight weeks sooner than you had anticipated calling them to tell them this news, what was that phone call like? My husband made the phone call um, and I, looking back and kind of knowing everything, I I mean, obviously my mom was terrified and um, they just hopped on a plane. They literally just drove to the airport, um, (laughs) like threw whatever they could in a bag and they got on the first flight they could. And I didn't, I think at that point, I still didn't understand the seriousness of everything. And talking to my brother after the fact, he explained that he didn't know if he was coming to see his niece be born or if his sister was going to pass away. And that was, you know, I don't think I understood until afterwards, you know, until after, you know, obviously everything was okay, but how scary it it did get. Was there any moment where you thought I might die because of this? It's interesting. I never really thought of that. Um, my mind went to my daughter. You know, it was kind of like whatever happens with me, you know, that's just what it is. But her, you know, my I, I definitely was just very scared for what that meant for her and, you know, um, you know, would she be fighting for her life? You know, just just and and just being so unfamiliar with you know, premature babies. I had no real knowledge of um of anything in, in that sense. And at this point, you knew you were having a girl. Is that right? Yes, I did. And did you and your husband, had you decided on a name already? We did. Yeah, we and we knew that her name was going to be Cameron. And um, so we did have that part. That was probably all we had together. (laughs) That's good. I feel like not everyone has that at 32 weeks. So you were ready in that sense, at least. Yeah, we were prepared with that. So you're someone who, because of 
you know, being an athlete, you have to remain pretty calm in high stress situations. I'm curious how you dealt with this versus how your husband dealt with this stress and all of the unknowns. I think he did a really good job being strong for me and trying to keep me calm. Um, and I think he had his moments, you know, and he tried to have them kind of away from me and, you know, did a great job um, trying to calm me because even though I, I perform in high stress situations, uh, this is, I, I'm the expert usually in that area, you know, and here I am in just foreign territory. And so I, I remember having the moment of just completely breaking down and, just being in tears of being scared and just, you know, all of the things just kind of hitting me. And so um, it almost felt like our roles kind of switched to what they usually are, you know, and he kind of took on that role of, you know, decision maker and, you know, uh, navigating all the speaking with the doctors and having to make some decisions that I was in no position to be able to make. Tell me about the tipping point when the medical team said, okay, we're bringing you in to do an emergency C-section now. It was actually, it was all, you know, extremely rushed. And so at, at one moment, I thought that things were going okay. So at this point, we're still trying to see how long I can make it. And so we're thinking, you know, at least another week, maybe two weeks, um, but also with the possibility that things could turn at any moment. And that's why they said it was time for my family to come. Um, and so we had one of those moments where I'm not even sure exactly how it all fell through, but all of a sudden there was tons of people in my room. They were removing my jewelry and it was, you know, very quickly taking me out. And I, I felt like I didn't even have time to kind of think, you know, or wrap my head around it. It was just moving very quickly. Did you already have an epidural at this point or did they have to rush you through that step? So because I had this birth plan in my mind and I had wanted that natural birth, I had kind of um, been a little difficult in that area because I didn't want an epidural. <laughs> um, and so what they had agreed with me to do was put a line in and, um, and, and see if they needed to put the medication in. So the line was in and then they just had to go ahead and, um, and, and put the medication in. So then they wheel you into the operating room. Does your husband go with you? Yes, yes. So he, you know, went with me. Um, you know, we did have a moment of prayer in, in the operating room. And yeah. So then tell me about the moment when they start the surgery. So um, they, they did the surgery. And um, I remember breaking down shortly after because they had to take Cameron away right away. And so I I barely got to see her face. I remember there was this quick moment where they kind of put her on my shoulder. And I remember we had made the decision that my husband would go with her. And so I was talking with him for a second. I was like, I, I didn't get to see her face. I, I didn't really get to see it. And it was just kind of this traumatic moment for me where I had imagined, you know, the skin to skin moment and this beautiful thing. And it was like, okay, I, I felt I just had a baby, but where is she? You know, is she okay? And it just wasn't how I had imagined it to be. Did she cry when they took her out? Um, not right away. And then kind of as they were whisking her away, I, I started to hear her cry a little bit. And so um, they were very reassuring to me, but also it was just like, okay, you're telling me all these things, but also, you know, I'm, I'm separated from my child at this moment. 
So your husband and Cameron are sort of whisked off. And then I imagine you're lying on the table. Your arms are out. You feel very vulnerable. They're sewing you up. What's going through your head at that moment? I was just uh, really concerned that she was going to be okay. I was um, I was a bit sad, you know, because um, obviously this wasn't the, the ideal situation. And yeah, I was just kind of waiting to see, you know, what was next. And when was the moment that the three of you were reunited? All three of us, it actually wasn't until the next day, or I guess real late that night. She was born at um, about 5.30 and well into the night, probably somewhere around midnight, I was able to be wheeled through her room. Um, So we were on two separate levels because at this point I still had complications with my health. Um, I was on the floor above her and she was on the floor below me. And um, I, yeah, I wasn't able to be in the same location. I, I literally was able to wheel through for about under five minutes. Oh, that must have been heartbreaking. It was absolutely terrible for me. Um, and yeah, just a really, really difficult situation. I, I was able to finally hold her the next day. What was it like holding her for the first time? It was incredible, you know, finally getting to get the skin to skin moments and um, yeah, finally, you know, getting to connect in that way and different than I had dreamt it up, but um, still, still beautiful. How big was she when you held her that first moment? Um, She was just over three pounds. And um, so she was itty bitty and she had all the the tubes and the, you know, she there was an IV and, you know, when they're that small, it, it had to go through her head. And so obviously she's hooked up to all of these different things. And I would soon learn what all of that meant. But yeah, it it was, you know, it was different, but I was grateful because I know at that stage, you know, many mothers aren't able to hold their babies for a, a long time. So I was very grateful to have that moment. And what were the next few days like um, as you're recuperating? I read somewhere that you said like you just weren't focusing on your own health at all. You were just focusing on Cameron. What were they monitoring for you? Was there still concern about your health? What was going on? Yeah, I was having some struggles with my blood pressure. And so trying to get that under control and it it took a, a bit. And so that was really challenging because, you know, she's having her own issues in the NICU and I'm having my issues on the floor above. And all I want to do is be down there with her. And so it's just this constant kind of struggle and and battle and also balancing all the new mom things and, uh, you know, all of that. So it was it was definitely a very challenging, um, you know, first couple of days. And when you talk about this time with your husband now, I always find it interesting that like the two partners often have very different views of what was going on. What does he say about those first few days and how difficult it was for him watching both of you struggle? Yeah, um, it was really challenging for him as well. Um, I didn't even realize, you know, obviously he's having to, he actually can be in both places. So, you know, he's trying to make sure that I'm you know, I'm good. And then he's also trying to be there for, you know, for rounds with doctors and, you know, making sure all the communication is going through. Um, At this point, my mom and my brother are there. And so they're very helpful. You know, my mom was able to kind of go back and forth when he had to be with me. She's down there and vice versa. Got it. So tell me how long you and Cameron were in the hospital for. So I was in the hospital for about eight days, and um, she was in the hospital for a month. 
And after eight days, was it difficult for you to leave her? I imagine you were happy to leave your hospital bed and be able to be discharged, but was it painful leaving her there? I think that's probably the worst, like going home from the hospital without a baby. It's like this this is just wrong. Um, but I remember being released. I was literally released. And then, you know, we go home and we literally drive right back to the hospital. Um, and we were we were with her around the clock. And so even though I was released, I was still, um, you know, she had a full hospital room. So we were set up there and camped out there. And so not too much change from when I was released to it was just a better situation because now I could actually be in her room. And what was that time like? Were you able to hold her as much as you wanted? Was she being fed through a tube or were you feeding her? Yeah. So it was still hard. I I was learning that the NICU was just such a heavy place. And I don't think I had, maybe I had been to NICU once before, but it was just an eye-opening experience. And so we were learning to care for her and the things that we could do. And so I was starting to breastfeed a little bit, but she still had a tube in. And so we were, you know, working on that. Um, she was still obviously hooked up to a lot of different things. Um, and I was learning what all the different beeps mean and, you know, um, learning all the the NICU nurses who were absolutely incredible and helped us so much through that time, but also understanding what other mothers are going through. I think that was the most gut-wrenching part of it all is that, you know, we're in a pod and, you know, we have our own room, but there's also all these other families that are in, you know, in this situation. And you're seeing the severity of some people's situation and there are some good days and there are some days where parents are losing children. And it's absolutely just a devastating place to be because so quickly things can turn and it's just so emotional and so heavy. And so it was um, it was really hard to be there. And what was Cameron's journey like from the day she was born to the day you took her home? Were there ups and downs? Was she steadily gaining weight? Were there any big scares for you? Yeah, we had ups and downs. And so her, I mean, obviously being two months early, the biggest thing was for her to, you know, just to grow and to get stronger and all of that. She had some bradycardia issues and that was, that that became the biggest thing to for her to be able to go home. And so some issues just with her um, heart and breathing and making sure that she you know, that she would grow out of that because that is something that happens, you know, with really small babies. And as a mother, it's terrifying when you hear your baby's heart is not, uh, you know, might skip a beat or something like that, you know, trying to understand it in, in lay terms and looking at the monitors and being able to actually see when it's happening and an alarm goes off and nurses rush in. And so all of that, just navigating that world, um, it, it was challenging. And so let's talk about the day that you get the okay to bring her home. Did they give you a goal in mind or was it really like we have to take this day by day and and decide as we go? They gave us, um, you know, her due date as the goal. And so I think that was, you know, definitely being on the more cautious side. Um, This is all happening during the holidays. And so it was my personal goal that she would be home for Christmas. And that was probably another mistake. Um, But she had to have a certain amount of days not having any episodes before she could go home. And every time she would have an episode, the count would start over. And so it was going through that process of, okay, well, she's definitely not going to make it home for Christmas now because she's had an episode too close. 
But once we finally got to that day, it was just the best feeling because I had been seeing mothers go home and families go home with their children and, you know, just waiting, you know, when is our day going to come? And when it finally came, it was incredible. Yeah. So what about Christmas? Did you do it in the NICU with her? We did. Um, we had Christmas there, just, you know, me and my husband and, um, and, and Cameron and celebrated that way. And, you know, obviously it was a very different Christmas, but it was special for us all to be together. Do they decorate the NICU? Did you bring presents and open them? I, I'm curious about the scene. I absolutely brought presents. And yes, they decorated like their doors. And um, they actually had like these very cute little Santa hats for the babies. And oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. And my husband tracked down like a actual Santa that was in the um, the hospital that day. And we got some little photos. I don't think he was supposed to have Santa come into the NICU. I, I think they were a little upset with us afterwards. But he was like, I'm going to make this. Ha- if we have to be in here, I'm going to uh, bring some joy. <laughs> On January 1st, 2019, after more than a month in the NICU, Allison Felix and her husband, Kenneth Ferguson, got the good news that their baby was healthy enough to be released from the hospital. Allison posted a photo on Instagram of the three of them leaving the NICU with the caption, I felt like this day would never come. Overjoyed to get to bring our baby girl home. It was an incredible day to be able to bring her home. I remember being so excited, you know, uh, having all the things, but also being really nervous because, you know, she was hooked up to all the monitors and just having that responsibility now being on myself, I definitely almost in a sense didn't feel ready to, you know, have it all on my own, but was reassured by the nurses and everything. And so it was a beautiful day, you know, walking out and we took a lot to video and our nurses were so incredible. And so it was special, I think, for everybody. They, they felt really great for us to have that moment. Allison's harrowing birth story is a reminder that anyone, yes, even a world-class athlete, can have a serious pregnancy emergency. Every year in the U.S., between 700 to 900 women die from pregnancy or childbirth-related causes, and roughly 65,000 nearly die. And Black women are four times more likely to die from a pregnancy-related cause than white women. Allison says her experience and learning about these awful statistics turned her into an activist. She joined a campaign called Hear Her, which launched last year by the CDC to create public awareness of the warning signs of pregnancy emergencies. And in May of 2019, she testified about the need to address the racial disparities with maternal health care. I learned that black women are nearly four times more likely to die from childbirth than white mothers are in the United States, and that we suffer severe complications twice as often. The data was teaching me that risk is equally shared by all black women, regardless of income, education, or geographical location. So all the ways that made me think I was prepared and doing things the right way still are not for black women. That's it for this episode of Me Becoming Mom. Next week, we'll have another amazing celebrity story, this time from Sopranos actress, Jamie Lynn Sigler. She revealed she had MS after battling it in private for 15 years, and she actually credits her oldest son, Beau, for giving her the strength to speak out. There's a reason Beau was my firstborn. All he ever wants to do is take care of me, and he's been that way since day one, and so, he would completely understand like, hey buddy, mommy needs to sit down for a while. He would shift and be like, okay, let's play Legos. He taught me that my disability didn't have to take away from our relationship. 
and he taught me to kind of have more acceptance, even myself, for what my situation was. I'm Zoe Ruderman with People. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast is produced by People in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Andy Cubis, Jason Mack, Brian Rivers, Eliza Sessler, and Suzanne Semeloff. Our executive producers are Lauren Mickler, David Flumenbaum, and me, Zoe Ruderman. Thank you so much for listening.